Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, merger on the dance floor. Partners Elizabeth Avery and Simon Most return to take us through the ACCC's latest arguments on the future of merger control. The ACCC is sort of putting forward that you have to take their model. It's an entire package. Mandatory and suspensory review needs to go with their affirmative test plus the limited merits review. It's not clear to most of us why that's the case. Really, it doesn't seem to be a sound basis, particularly as in other jurisdictions, it's not the case. Mergers are a really important part of the economy and allowing companies to exit and enter, allowing them to pivot and to grow and to, to be dynamic is a very important feature of the way we operate, especially in times where there are big transitions happening in the economy and you need to be able to shift and change and pivot. Now, I remember Sophie Ellis-Bexter's murder on the dance floor from its time in the charts in 2001. But is that going to mean anything to today's listeners? The song's actually back in the charts after featuring in Emerald Fennell's new film, Saltburn. It's now being called the most viral TikTok of the moment. Mm. And Sophie Ellis-Bexter is headlining the Bondi Beach Party for Mardi Gras this year. It's actually a pretty amazing comeback. A bit like our sweet Caroline came back as the song for the England football team for some reason. Yeah, or Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush after it played a key role in Stranger Things. That's going back away. There was also a controversial merger of the dance floors in Melbourne in 1926 where the Waddle Path Palais de Danse combined with the nearby St Kilda Palais de Danse for the express purpose of eliminating the cutthroat competition between them. Well, that's really going back away. Have any dancehall numbers been brought back into the charts by recent movies or football teams? Well, I'm forever blowing bubbles is from 1919. Oh, West Ham, Mackenzie Arnold, Katrina Gorey, look out. Massive. Also, Glenda Jackson sang it to a bunch of cows in Ken Russell's 1969 film Women in Love. Ah, huh. So, there's a Palais Theatre in St Kilda next to Luna Park. Is that any relation? The Palais Theatre was once a Palais de Dance, but it wasn't that Palais de Dance. That one was next door. And both that one and the Waddle Path one survived under their joint ownership for about 10 more years, at least according to the Around the Dance Hall section of the Melbourne Herald, as it then was. Scale economies, no doubt. And has anything been happening around the dance hall since then? Well, last time we mentioned the ACCC's focus on the cost of living, or Cosy Lives. Yeah, Macquarie Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2023. It was. As the Macquarie Committee said, uh, although Cosy Lives was coined in the UK, it's resonated soundly with Australians, with its IE suffix and its clipped formation, reminiscent of Menti B and Lockie D. Really? So that's what, lockdown and mental breakdown? I suppose. Cosy Lives was in the context of this new inquiry into supermarket pricing, but it's now popping up all across the regulatory landscape. I saw that former ACCC Chair Alan Fells ran an inquiry into price gouging and unfair trading practices for the ACTU. So, pricey G's. Yeah, and unfit T's, that's right. Yeah, Professor Fells looked at a bunch of sectors, including electricity and banking, aviation and groceries. Uh, from banks to beer to baby food? You know it. And he's called out price discrimination, loyalty taxes and schemes, drip pricing and excuseflation, which is using inflation as a pretext for raising prices higher than they really need to be. And there's also confusion pricing, which makes it hard to compare prices or work out whether a particular price is fair. And the rockets and feathers effect, where prices are quick to go up when the costs go up, but take a long time to come down again when the costs ease. Yeah, and he's recommended that our prohibition against the misuse of market power should be expanded to cover excessive or exploitative pricing like they do in Europe. XEPs. We've never done that here, though, and they haven't done it in the US either, have they? Because high prices are meant to encourage new entrants and additional competition. 
That's the idea. Professor Fells also says the ACCC should conduct more market studies. Oh, well, he's got his wish there. Yeah, and he's in favour of the ACCC's merger proposals as well. Yeah, he says the competition law should be shortened and the criminal cartel provisions should be simplified. Yeah, he always used to say that the law should just be any behaviour that substantially lessens competition is prohibited unless authorised. And he was joking, but maybe not entirely. Not entirely. Um, He's talked to a lot of people and he's found concerning increases in the price of cheese, bread, milk, eggs and breakfast cereals. Hmm, So breakfast is still the most important meal of the day for regulators and ex-regulators. Seems to be. You know, Louis Armstrong's Big Butter and Egg Man was a dance hall hit in 1926, and that could use a revival, I reckon. Oh, well, the football teams. Isn't there also a Senate inquiry that's looking at the price-setting practices and market power of the major supermarkets due to report in May? There is. The terms of reference for that one are all about the prices that consumers pay for groceries, but a lot of the submissions are from farmers and other suppliers, and they're worried about the prices they're getting from the supermarkets and the processors, which they say are too low. Hmm, that's fair enough, but it's a tension, right? If I'm a supermarket and I'm meant to charge my customers less and pay my suppliers more, well, I've only got so much room to move. You do. And I do have to point out that one of the commentators here is governance expert Bas Kolesnikov, who says, in Europe, they have competition. Australia has very little. Coles and Woolworths are very strong and their margins are holding up. Is that a problem in an industry that has relatively thin margins to begin with and relies on volume? Well, the real point here is that Kolesnikov, when you write it down, looks a bit like Coles Nikoff. Oh, uh, I'm not sure you did have to point that out, but is that it for Cozy Lives? Not quite. Still on the supplier side, there's also a review of the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, which regulates arrangements between the supermarkets and their suppliers, and which will be 10 years old next year. And this is a voluntary code, but it's binding on supermarkets and distributors who've signed up to it. And that includes Woolworths, Coles, Aldi, and Metcash, which is pretty good coverage. It is. The review is being done by Craig Emerson, who was our longest serving minister for competition and consumer affairs. Did he have much competition there? Not that much. He held that title for 15 months under the Rudd-Gillard government, edging Chris Bowen, who had it for seven months, and David Bradbury, who was there for about 10 weeks. Those were some pretty crazy times. They were. Dr. Emerson was also, of course, the incredibly good sport who sang and danced the No Whale or Wipeout song to the tune of Horror Movie by the Skyhooks back in 2012. Let it roll. No why I'll wipe out there on my TV. No why I'll wipe out there on my TV. No why I'll wipe out there on my TV. Shocking me right out of my brain. Shocking me right out of my brain. And this was in response to Tony Abbott's claim that the carbon tax would wipe Wyala off the map. And the Wyala Steelworks did go into administration, but it came out of it. And now it and Steelworks around the country are making big investments in green steel which is steel produced without coking coal. Did No Wyala Wipeout spark new interest in the Skyhook song? Not really, uh, and I'm not sure this podcast is going to spark too much more interest in the No Wyala Wipeout song either. No, but it was a fun moment in the carbon debate, and there weren't many of those. There weren't. Did you know that Skyhooks were named after Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator? I did not. Yeah, Wonka says that Skyhooks are what keep the elevator hanging in the air though he never says what the other end might be attached to. Is that true, or is it just a convenient segue? I always thought it was true. Wikipedia is now saying the name comes from Project Skyhook from the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, but I'm choosing not to believe that. Because it's a convenient segue. Well, now that you mention it, the novel of Wonka has just come out, and it sticks pretty close to the movie, but it does add a new wrinkle to the chocolate cartel. So this is the book of the movie that's a prequel to the movie of the book. I think that's right. Got it. 
And in the book, young Wonka decides he's going to disrupt the cartel by tempting Slugworth, Fickle Grouper, and Prodnose to defect on all the others. He writes to each of them, saying, I will work for you and you alone. With your nose for business and my talent, we could bankrupt the other two members of your so-called cartel and split the profit two ways instead of three. And they all agree to ditch the others, and that's what kind of hastens their downfall. Well, cartels are said to be inherently unstable because the carteliers are all really out for themselves and they're likely to turn if it's worth their while. That's right. And the cartel immunity and leniency policies that most regulators have these days are meant to make it even more worth their while to defect. Yeah. Yet some of those cartels go on for years or even decades, don't they? They do. Estimates are that the average cartel lasts for something like five or six years. But the express freight cartel between TNT, Anset and Main Nicholas here may have gone on for two decades before a new entrant reported it in the 1990s. And the ones that last are the ones that can maintain trust between the participants, which often comes down to the individuals involved. And it helps if you're all in the same demographic, I guess, age, education, cultural background and gender, I imagine. Yeah, there's just been a study of 15 German cartels, and it's found that the 156 individuals involved there were highly homogeneous, and only two of them were women. Oh, who'd have thought? Cartels are old boys clubs. Not that surprising, is it? No, it's kind of surprising that the chocolate cartel lasted as long as it did, really. Mm, Well, reminds me a bit of that Tim Tam ad, remember? Use by dates. Why do they bother? Anyway, before we get to the deep dive, is there anything else from last time that you wanted to add to? Well, we were talking about the difference between an and and an or in the Digital Markets Act and what that might mean for Apple's compliance. Ah, and the Oxford comma that cost that dairy company 10 million bucks. That's right. Of course, we should have mentioned Mariner 1, which was meant to be the first space probe to fly past Venus, but it had to be blown up just after liftoff after it went off course because of a tiny mistake in its computer code. Yeah, the most expensive hyphen in history, according to Arthur C. Clarke. And apparently the error was in the original handwritten equation, which should have had a line or a bar over one of the variables, so it wasn't really a hyphen technically. But it still cost $18,000,000, $1962. That's right. And now there's a story in the papers about a scam that cost a young couple $284,000 after hackers apparently intercepted messages from their conveyancer and sent a new email from an address that differed from the old one by only a single S. Ouch, sounds like an expensive S. Yeah, the hackers said that the couple should send their deposit straight to PEXA, the electronic conveyancing platform, and they sent fake PEXA forms with their own bank details and followed up with fake PEXA receipts. So the new home buyers didn't find out they'd paid their deposit to scammers until right before they were supposed to settle. Mm, Quite a sophisticated scam. I mean, most people don't really know what PEXA is or how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and usually when you get a dodgy link, it's more than an S away from the real one. Like just the other day, I was told to click on cba-verify-account.com, which just didn't seem right. You do have to watch out for those hyphens. Yeah, then I got one that said gov.servicesaustralia-au.online which at least has a lot of the elements you might look for, even if they're all in the wrong order. And you can see why a lot of people wouldn't look that closely, especially at the punctuation. Yeah, definitely. The ACCC Scamwatch reports that the total money lost to scams went down a bit last year, but false billing scams like this have gone up by about 10%. Well, I reckon the number of messages I've received about packages I never ordered and tolls I don't owe has gone up at least 10%. Yeah, same here. But As we said last time, the biggest thing around the dance halls has to be the changes to the merger process that the ACCC has proposed. And you've just sat down with partners Elizabeth Avery and Simon Mose about how we got here and where we may be headed. I did. Elizabeth and Simon had a lot to say about the way the ACCC's position has focused over time and what they get right and where there might still be some work to be done. Let's take a listen. 
Joining me today are partners Elizabeth Avery and Simon Mose, who've been closely involved in the debate over merger reform for some time, with a column in the Financial Review late last year and a number of headline-worthy comments since then. Elizabeth and Simon, welcome back to The Competitive Edge. Thank you, Matt. Lovely to hear from you again. Thanks, mate. Good to be back. We've been talking about possible changes to the merger approval process for a few years now, but it feels like things might be accelerating right at the moment. Can you tell us how we got here and what happens next? Look, I think like so many things related to law reform in the ACCC, the sort of starting point for the merger reform debate really came out of a couple of major merger litigation losses to the ACCC, notably Horizon PN in 2019 and then TPG Vodafone in 2020. And it was Shortly after that, that the then chair, Rod Sims, uh, in late 2021, gave really the speech that set out the agenda the ACCC had for merger reform. Firstly, for a mandatory and suspensory regime. So wanted to improve and tighten up the formality of the, of the notification process of mergers. He was obviously coming off the back of those couple of losses, focused very much on how can we improve our prospects of establishing the SLC counterfactual in court or on review. And so at that time was talking about defining the test of likely in the context of the Section 50 standards. And then was also looking at some additional changes around market power, digital platforms, and tweaks to the merger factors. So there was a kind of package of things that he put out as being a starting point, as he put it, for debate and for discussion, and certainly was. What I think has happened since then was the merger policy debate has been swept up in a broader conversation about cost of living, about the implications of competition policy on productivity, especially here in Australia, where that's a big part of the debate. And I think, frankly, the politics right now are there's a sense the government should get on and do something around competition policy and cost of living pressure. And merger reform, I feel, is probably the best developed of the areas that the ACCC had worked up to look at. So not long after the Rod Sims speech, of course, we learned that Gina Cascott-Lieb was about to leave us to take up the role of the chair of the ACCC, joining prominent lawyers Liza Carver and Stephen Ridgway on the commission. What impact did that have on the ACCC's push for these changes, Elizabeth? I think there was initially a slight pause in the in the debate and Gina came out and said she welcomed the debate and there was some discussion about the mandatory and suspensory regime for a while, then the the debate has really accelerated recently and the new chair then confirmed the ACCC's position that the current process wasn't fit for purpose, either on the basis of the, the filing regime, but also substantive elements of the test for clearance. She noted a new perspective in dealing with multi-jurisdictional mergers from within the ACCC commenting that parties were strategic in their approach to different regulators and sometimes avoided dealing with the ACCC promptly, which was vexing the ACCC and often didn't give them enough time to consider a a merger substantively. More details emerged gradually of the new ACCC's thinking in relation to the mandatory and suspensory regime in particular. They recommended to the Treasury some indicative thresholds for filing being $400 million in turnover and $35 million global transaction value with an option for a call-in power and also a waiver for simple cases which really didn't require an in-depth review. The new ACCC also endorsed the test that was part of the authorization process currently, which was an administrative test which required 
the ACCC to be satisfied in all the circumstances that a merger would not substantially lessen competition. And then as a second stage to that would consider whether the public benefits could outweigh any competitive detriments. The new chair also made clear that the ACCC was endorsing a a tribunal limited merits review. So it would be similar to the review in the merger authorization process, uh, whereby the tribunal considers the matter on the evidence that was before the ACCC. The role of the federal court was left a little bit open. There was still a, a proposal that parties would have the ability to approach the court for declaratory relief, but it was unclear at what stage parties would have the ability to do so. The other thing that has happened over the last 12 or 18 months is that we've had for the first time experience with the limited merits regime in Telstra TPG and then also more recently in ANZ Suncorp. And I think the ACCC loved what they saw. And so they doubled down on limiting the kind of review rights to merger parties to very much that limited merits review model, which wasn't really a key feature of what Rod had been talking about. I agree. And I think their thinking has been significantly influenced by their experience of the merger authorization process in the last year or so. The ACCC's had four quite complex mergers to consider under the merger authorization process, which is about as many as they'd had in the entire history of the merger authorization regime. And they have thought very carefully about the the legal test and pointed out that it is not like the informal clearance test. The parties essentially have to satisfy the ACCC that the merger does not substantially lessen competition. That's a much higher bar than the informal clearance process. And in each of those four cases that the ACCC has considered, they have denied authorization on the basis of the competition test because they've not been able to be satisfied in all the circumstances that the merger does not substantially lessen competition. And in two of those cases, they have allowed them to proceed on the basis of public benefits secured through undertakings. But I think it does inform the ACCC's thinking quite a bit, that recent experience that they've had. And how's the government responded so far to the ACCC's proposal? Back in August last year, the government formed a a competition task force. It's a high-powered kind of cross-governmental body that was formed not just to look at mergers, but merger reform was certainly the first cab off the rank. That task force has an external advisory review body or panel, again, full of high-powered names from government and corporate Australia with a wide set of experience and insights to sort of advise that task force. They kicked off pretty quickly a consultation around merger reform, and that was launched in November last year. And it was, to some extent, a pretty compressed timeframe. So parties were asked to respond mid to late January. We've now moved into a phase where that process is closed. We understand that a recommendation has gone up to the Treasurer uh, or was due to go up around the 9th of February And the indications are the government's keen to move quickly on this. So we'd expect to see something as soon as sort of end of the month. Quite what that looks like, no one yet is certain. Where the task force started was to lay out two or three options, one of which was the ACCC proposal, but it wasn't the only proposal or the only option that it was looking at. So hopefully what we'll see is is a refinement of that and possibly Treasury sort of setting out or staking out what the package they're currently thinking about looks like for further public consultation and development. Because I think it is fair to say 
the nature, certainly the ACCC proposal, as we've been talking about, is very significant and would be sort of a fundamental shift. So I think if you were going to go anywhere down that path, you'd want to have a very substantial and and sort of meaningful consultation around those changes. I I think the Treasury has done so far a great job in the consultation process. Mm -hmm. They've held lots of roundtables with interested stakeholders and the the debate and um, questions in those roundtables has been open. And I I do feel that the Treasury has been open to discussions and hasn't settled on a particular model yet. Now, they've put forward three different models. You know, the ACCC clearly likes what the Treasury has labelled as option three, which is this package of mandatory suspensory notification plus this need to be satisfied that there's no substantial lessening competition plus limited merits review. Option two is what might be described as a US model, which is a mandatory and suspensory regime, but then an enforcement prohibition regime. So the ACCC would get powers to require parties notify above a certain threshold and the parties couldn't close the transaction while the ACCC was reviewing that transaction. But then if the ACCC decides that it wants to block the transaction, it would have to go to court and prove that the merger is likely to substantially lessen competition. So quite different to the the test where um, the ACCC will not approve a merger to go forward unless it is satisfied in all the circumstances that a merger is not likely to substantially lessen competition. And then you have a sort of a UK NZ model, which involves a voluntary formal clearance process, which is put forward as their option one. So there, there are different elements in each of those models. The ACCC is sort of putting forward that you have to take their model. It's an entire package. Mandatory and suspensory review needs to go with their affirmative test plus the limited merits review. It's not clear to most of us why that's the case. Really, it doesn't seem to be a sound basis, particularly as in other jurisdictions, it's not the case. And it's quite possible to have a mandatory and suspensory regime, but still give parties the opportunity to test the evidence properly in court and have the ACCC being required to prove their case. The way I view the ACCC proposal, it, it strikes me they're trying to do two quite distinct things. On the one hand, the problem they're trying to solve is one of, are we seeing enough of the mergers that are being undertaken? So there's a question around notification, you know, is there sufficient respect for the ACCC in the process and, and are they being given enough time? And look, one can make arguments about whether or not that's the case. Certainly, ACCC's put up evidence that suggests we only see, you know, 300 or 350 odd mergers of the 1500 that, that occur every year. One can argue about the relevance of those kind of numbers. To be honest, you wouldn't want and the ACCC wouldn't want to see every merger. As much as we can estimate these things, it strikes us that the level that they're seeing is not all that different, in fact, might even be greater than you're seeing in the UK or the US or other places. And then I think it's quite a distinct issue to say, are we losing too many difficult cases? In other words, are there mergers going through, anti-competitive mergers that we've not been able to stop because the test is wrong? And to me, that's the much more significant question. And that's the much more significant policy issue at the heart, I think, of not so much the mandatory and suspensory elements of the package, but the other elements around the satisfaction test, as Elizabeth has, has spoken about, and removing the federal court from an oversight evidentiary role. And the element of that that's important too here to bear in mind is that you're moving from a test that has a conventional burden of proof to the balance of probabilities before a court, the very traditional 
judicial process to one that is not based around a formal burden of proof in the ACCC, except that's not what it would have in a satisfaction model, where the focus is not so much on the evidence that supports a substantive decision, but on the reasonableness of the mind of the decision maker in terms of the process that they've adopted. And that is a fundamental sort of difference and gear change in the way you think about it. And that's directed to, can we block more deals? Can we get ourselves more scope to say no more often? And frankly, without the discipline at times that we find difficult to deal with around evidence and that burden, that balance of probabilities test in the federal court. Yeah, it's it's interesting in that currently under the informal clearance regime, the ACCC clears in pre-assessment or in a very short space of time, 90% of cases and only takes 10% of cases to public review for a more in-depth investigation. So 90% of occasions... The ACCC considers that the merger is benign. So it's difficult in the light of that statistic, I think, to move to a world where the starting position is that the merger is bad unless the ACCC grants permission to merge. That seems like an overreaction to what might be an occasional case that the ACCC feels they ought to have blocked. And in fact, the data suggests that the ACCC is successful in either blocking or reshaping at least 95% of the deals that it's unhappy with. I mean, when you look at those that either get withdrawn before you get to a red light or get a red light and then are withdrawn or only cleared with undertakings with the, with the approval of the ACCC, the number that actually end up in court or end up in the tribunal is staggeringly low in the context of the overall number of mergers. And even then, when you get to the federal court, which has happened, say, seven times in the last decade or two decades, you know, in 40% of those cases, they have either withdrawn from the litigation and withdrawn from the deal, or, or they've, again, reshaped the deal off the back of undertakings and the litigation's kind of disappeared. So are there a handful? Are there three or four cases in the federal court over the last decade where the ACCC's lost? Yes. Are they high profile? Yes. Is the ACCC disappointed? I'm sure they are. But I'm not sure it's a compelling case in terms of evidence for such a significant shift in the regime. So what would it mean to move from the current federal court judicial process to appeal to a limited merits review by the competition tribunal? There are a number of elements of the federal court process that are not available to you as a party before the tribunal. It's extremely limited merits review in the sense that your ability to bring material before the tribunal is absolutely limited to the material that was before the ACCC. The challenge with what's now occurred is that as a participant in the ACCC authorization process, you don't get to see everything that's before the ACCC, either because it's commercial and confidence, confidential to third parties, or because it involves material that the ACCC's obtained through use of its compulsory powers that it's not obliged to make available to you. So there's a significant amount of material that you see for the first time only after the ACCC has made its determination. And by that point, it's too late for you then to be able to corral uh, additional material, seek to cross-examine witnesses, or engage in the, the, the kind of testing of evidence, the testing of findings, the, the bringing forward of additional substantive material that might contradict some of the analysis that was put by, for example, contradictors to a deal or what have you. So all of that material as a starting position can't be brought before the tribunal. So that's a very constrained process. You compare that with the federal court where you have clear rights of discovery, you have clear rights to bring your evidence before the court, you can cross-examine the case that's made against you once you see it and you're entitled to see it in its fulsomeness. 
you, you can bring on experts and there's a, a range of ways expert material can be brought before the court. So that they're very different processes. And I think it's understandable why the commission would prefer limited merits review, but speaking as a practitioner and someone who has been through both processes, there's no doubt in my mind that the, the quality of the testing and, and of the decision-making of the ACCC is adversely affected by those constraints. I'd say we're very fortunate right now with the composition mm. of the ACCC. We've got very experienced lawyers who are very skilled at their jobs, and it's not that we would doubt the quality of their reviews, but as a matter of institutional design, it's important that the decision-making process is seen to have due process and afford parties' rights particularly where it is accepted or uncontroversial that in the vast majority of cases, mergers don't cause any harm to competition. It's very important that parties have due process rights to test a decision properly. It enhances not only the quality of the ACCC decision-making, which right now is top-notch in any event, but it enhances the perception that their decisions are robust and subject to a very significant level of scrutiny. One of the other elements that I think is relevant here in terms of the ACCC's justification for the change is I think a clear intention to shift the regime so it skews, as it were, in favour of allowing the ACCC to block more transactions more often. And bundled into that is the idea that today there are anti-competitive mergers being allowed which ought to be blocked. And they describe those, if you like, type one errors that are resulting in anti-competitive mergers sneaking through or being pushed through by parties that the ACCC finds itself unable to block. What I don't think has been appropriately recognized is that if we shift to a model that is quite intentionally set up to allow for more type two errors, in other words, to allow more cases of the ACCC blocking transactions that otherwise ought to have been permitted. These are transactions that would otherwise have enhanced consumer welfare, enhanced competitiveness, improved efficiency. And if they are blocked, you lose all of those benefits and potentially chill more broadly investment in the economy. So one shouldn't assume that those sort of type two areas are costless. If you're not able to really clearly establish that there are many, if any, of those type one errors being made, and when one looks at the case for change here, it's limited to a handful of anecdotal cases the ACCC have lost over a couple of decades. I'm not convinced that shifting the model so that you're allowing more regulatory errors of a type two nature is necessarily the right economic outcome. I'm not sure it's the right thing for the economy, for investment, for dynamism, for productivity, for consumer welfare, for any of that stuff. Others may not like this, but the reality is mergers are a really important part of the economy and allowing companies to exit and enter, allowing them to pivot and to grow and to, to be dynamic is a very important feature of the way we operate, especially in times where there are big transitions happening in the economy and you need to be able to shift and change and pivot. So something is lost when you make that more difficult to do. And, and I think that needs to be Recognized. I guess where the ACCC is coming from is, in its view, if there is to be a false positive or a false negative, then we should err on the side of false negatives rather than false positives because if you block less mergers than you should, consumers suffer. Why should we give the benefit of the doubt to the merging parties, to the corporations versus the consumers? In my mind, that's a bit of a false dichotomy. Because as Simon is saying, 
actually mergers are an important part of the economy for productivity and therefore for competition. When you don't allow parties to merge, you basically protect dying competitors that are dinosaurs and actually don't deserve to still be isolated from competition. Consumers benefit from new entry. New entry will be prohibited if investors in those new businesses can't be confident that they will eventually be able to exit their investment because a larger player will be able to acquire them. That will be a consumer harm. It's not big business versus consumers. I think we forget that actually business is there to serve consumers and the the nature of competition is to protect consumers. So at this stage, from where we're sitting now, which way do you think the wind is blowing? What do you think is going to happen? Look, while our informal voluntary regime in general works very well, I wouldn't be surprised if a mandatory and suspensory regime of some form is introduced. That wouldn't be out of step with the rest of the world. Some of the other reforms that are being proposed would take us outside most well-developed international regimes and I do think require a lot more thought for the reasons that we've discussed today. There are some unintended consequences and potential impacts on consumers. I think the Treasury Task Force will look long and hard at these things, but I do think that there's probably a longer road to go before those reforms get up. I wouldn't want to be heard to say there aren't improvements that can be made to the merger process. I mean, I think there absolutely are, and and many of those can be done reasonably quickly and and efficiently, and, and in many cases don't require legislative reform. You could update the merger guidelines, both the substantive and the process guidelines. You could improve clarity around information requirements if you're concerned that you're not seeing the information or the types of deals that you want to see. I mean, a lot of those things could be dealt with through sort of soft regulatory mechanisms quite quickly. And I think there would be real value for all of us in in seeing that happen. Whether or not we see the fundamental regearing of our regime, which as Elizabeth says, would take us, I think, out of step with global best practice, that is less clear to me. I, I hope that we don't see that, but you know, time will tell. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing how this plays out and, of course, how the government responds. Hope we can get you both back here to talk about it when that happens. Never get sick of it. Thanks, Matt. What a great interview. Now, the consultation period is officially closed, but there have been a couple of final submissions, including from the ACCC and the Law Council. It'll be really interesting to see them all when they're made public and especially how the government responds. Yeah, they'll have a lot to think about. And Treasury has already put forward some different options, so they may not agree that the ACCC's proposal can't be separated into different elements, but we'll see. Well, Elizabeth and Simon have had a quick look into the crystal ball. Is there anything left for us? Well, we haven't talked about AI at all this year, and there's been a fair bit going on. The final text of the European AI Act has now been approved by all the member countries, and it will include a special regime for foundation models like ChatGPT, which appeared while the Act was being developed. Some of the countries were worried about imposing too many restrictions on such new technology, weren't they? Yeah, France and Germany, among others, but they've all come around in the end. The obligations are really about transparency, so that people know when they're dealing with an AI system, and AI-generated content has to be identified by a machine-readable watermark. Yeah, we'll also need to be informed if we're exposed to an emotion recognition system, which sounds a bit dystopian to me, Mm. and deepfakes will also need to be identified clearly. 
Well, that's good news. As far as I can tell, the fight against deepfakes has mostly been waged by Taylor Swift fans who've been getting videos removed and social media accounts shut down. They're doing good work. They've even prompted a bipartisan bill in the US Senate to give victims the right to seek civil penalties against anyone who produces or distributes a deepfake. Unfortunately, it is called the Disrupt Explicit Forged Images and Non-Consensual Edits Act of 2024, or the Defiance Act. They just can't help themselves, can they? And keep in mind that in 2021, the House introduced the Defending Each and Every Person from False Appearances by Keeping Exploitation Subject to Accountability Act. Ugh, the Deep Fakes Accountability Act. I'm afraid so. Anyway, the tech team here have a really interesting update on deep fakes, including a recent success for the eSafety Commissioner, who's obtained an injunction and penalties for contempt against a foreign website that was hosting deep fakes of Australian residents. Maybe she can commence proceedings on behalf of Victorian MP Georgie Purcell, whose image was doctored by a news outlet to make her outfit look more revealing. Yeah, there they said that Photoshop and AI had done it automatically when they tried to resize the image, and Adobe had to weigh in and say there's just no way that could happen without human intervention. It's never happened to Barnaby Joyce, has it? I mean, we saw a lot of Tony Abbott, but that was entirely his decision. Yeah, I don't think it was a Speedo sponsorship. But most of the EU AI Act will come into effect in two years, is that right? It is. In the meantime, there's going to be an AI pact where industry participants can develop best practice guidelines and increase awareness to smooth the transition to the Act. Oh, a pre-Act pact. And where are we up to in Australia? In Australia, the government's been consulting on safe and responsible AI with a discussion paper last year, which prompted a lot of submissions. And it's just released an interim response with a European risk-based approach and a focus on testing, transparency and accountability, as well as clarifying and strengthening existing laws. Well, that's an important thing to remember, isn't it? Our existing consumer protection and privacy laws can be used to tackle these issues. We don't always have to wait for new laws. Yeah, and Ed Santo and others said that on a podcast from last year, didn't they? They did. And Ed Santo is now on a new artificial intelligence expert group to advise the government on all of this. And Industry and Science Minister Ed Husick says that the group brings the right mix of skills to steer the formation of mandatory guardrails for high-risk AI settings. Sure it does. You'll remember, of course, that Ed Husick's favourite film is Inception, whose soundtrack was based almost entirely on Edith Piaf's Non Je Regret Rien. But it's not clear whether that song made any kind of comeback as a result of the film. Ah, uh, maybe Taylor Swift could sing it at the next Chiefs game. Now, I see that Peter Waters has also got an update on the use of large language models in the law, including taking bar exams, giving legal advice, and even arguing cases before the court. Yeah, the studies are suggesting that legal hallucinations are becoming less frequent as the models evolve, but they're always going to be a risk. And even if that risk is eliminated, relying too heavily on those models could eliminate the kind of creativity and imagination that's necessary for the development of the law through the courts. So they're hallucinating too much in the wrong way and not enough in the right way? That's about the size of it. So as long as we're hallucinating in the right way, we'll still be in a job for now. But are there any predictions in the crystal ball this time? Well, this isn't my prediction, but I think it's worth sharing. Mm -hmm. In 2016, the German artist Nadia Buttendorf created a life-size replica of her own finger, which can be worn as an additional finger. Hmm. Well, that was before images were being widely generated by AI. But the fake finger does look a lot like the weird fingers you often see in those images, you know? Like that pic in the AFR of Sam Kerr holding up a trophy with too many fingers? Way too many fingers. And the internet's predicting that in the future, we'll all wear these fake fingers all the time, so that if we're filmed doing anything that we shouldn't be doing, we can point to the extra fingers and say the image was obviously AI-generated. Ah, oh, well, that does have a kind of genius about it. I mean, if AI ever came up with a scheme like that, 
Isn't it all over for humanity? It may well be. And it might be time to look into Competitive Edge branded fake fingers to go with the other merch we've got. Well, we may get more responses to the survey. Couldn't hurt. And you can still tell us what you think by filling in that survey. Remember, you can find the survey link and more in the show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including partner Andrew Lowe on recent developments in the payment system and Moira and others on ESG, sport and human rights. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, take that survey and tell your friends. Till next time, this was the Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.